that the basketball is, you know, it's supposed to finish when it's supposed to finish. But I think we can't wait. We need to go. And uh, if, if that's okay, and we will um, wait. Uh, if we wait f- for them, it, we may wait all night. But we've waited an hour now, so that's long enough. Um, so tomorrow night... We're, going, we're over in the church. So that's, that's the only difference about tomorrow night. So it's 7.28, the normal um, program over in the church. The difference will be that you've got music and that type of thing that will happen, um, and then there will be probably 45 minutes um, of with Arlene speaking, but there's certainly going to be some music and that type of thing around, around the program. Um, so I hope you enjoy that. And then on Saturday morning, back here again at 10 o'clock and then again at 3 o'clock. And there's two sessions, 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Sabbath afternoon. All right, so tomorrow night over there, back here for 10 o'clock. And then uh, that'll give us time to go over and catch up with Eddie at 11 o'clock. And then uh, in the afternoon, back here again, 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock. Thank you again. We're going to talk about communication and the secrets of communication. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I was supposed to put it on. The nurse in me is coming out. Where's your boot, Doc? (laughs) Okay, so I, I wrote a new section for you tonight. The one we had uh, scheduled, Seven Secrets of Communication, is one I often do for a church service, tying a lot of things with scripture. And that's on my website if you want the scripture. But I needed to do a regular communication secrets one, so I wrote that this afternoon. Challenged my brain a little bit. So let's see how it goes. I always love a place when I feel comfortable enough in trying out something new on everybody. All right, let's go. Brain benders, top left. Word in a word. In depth, sure. Second on the left. Left-handed, what else could it be based on position? High-handed, sure. Third on the left. Tall story. What else? Storyline. Good. What else? Where is it in the box? So central story. Could be lots of things. Uh, Bottom left. The word is communication. A broken communication, break in communication, communication breakdown. Good job. Top right. Catch up. Second on the right. It could be talking back and forth. It could be lack of communication. You know, one person's talking here and one person's talking there. You could have almost anything you want for that one. Uh, Third on the right. Double talk could work. I hadn't even thought of that one. I was thinking of parallel communication. 
And sometimes that's good and sometimes it's it's not. Bottom right. I don't even know that term. Can we talk later? <laughs> I can learn something new. You see, I cannot do these in many countries that I visit because people don't know English well enough. But then I run the risk, even in an English-speaking country like England, Canada, Australia, South Africa, that we have enough differences that, you know, what I'm thinking of, nobody thinks of. But so far, you've all been wonderful. All right, bottom right. Good job. I wondered if any brain would get that. What else could it be? Chip on the shoulder, sure. What else? What, where's the position in the box? Is it a high shoulder? Or is it a low shoulder? Do you have low shoulder signs sometimes on a highway? No? Yeah, well, see, there we go. Often when they're doing highway work in the States and they don't have the shoulder done, they'll put a sign up that says low shoulder. And if you pay attention, you know, you might have six inches of cement before you ever even get to the shoulder because it isn't done yet, and that would be enough to seriously impact your car. All right, here's another picture. What do you see? Do you remember the picture from last night that was just this face with the man painting the woman and, and her back being the nose? He's taken that painting and dub, dumped it in another larger one. You know, we could look a long time for this. Do you see the big face? Everybody see the big face? Anybody need help pointing it out? This, uh, this is the nose. There's a fine piece of wood. Uh, this, to me, looks like a mustache, you know, kind of a, a droopy mustache. There's an illusion of the mouth here, and then sort of the bottom part of the face. This is another eye coming out of a house. Now, let me turn it around again. I always like to do that because my brain sees things differently. Things pop out at me when I turn it around that I don't always see the first time. Okay, everybody see pretty much everything? All right, let's go. We're talking about communication secrets tonight, and we all speak the same language, right? Which is what I was just alluding to. So Russell Hoban, after all, when you come right down to it, how many speak the same language even when they speak the same language? which is absolutely true. We use the same words, but now we've got all kinds of language difference. Political analyst of the state said, we are a people divided by a common language. And if you've been following what's happening in the American Senate and House, talk about being divided by a common language. It's embarrassing, and I really don't usually get embarrassed. But I would like, if I could, to have every one of those senators and House representatives voted out of office, and let's put a few new people in there that maybe have, <clears throat> never mind. 
All right, so here's how we're divided by a common language. Jane leaves a shopping list on the kitchen table for her husband. It reads, we need a quart of milk and a carton of eggs, and if they have avocados, get 12. Got it? After finding 12 quarts of milk and 12 cartons of eggs crammed in the fridge, Jane gets upset and asks him, what in the world were you thinking? He replies, they had avocados. (laughs) Every male brain in this room gets that. And half the female brains are... (laughs) Good, one just got it. And and half the female brains are wondering, well, what was so unclear about my message? (laughs) It happens all the time, which is the reason marriage is going to be the hardest thing you ever do. It can be exceedingly rewarding, but it will be the hardest thing you ever do because we are divided by a common language. And that's still using English. All right. So communication estimates, you can find lots of studies, but they all circle around these percentages very closely. And that is, individuals spend 80% of their waking hours communicating. I think it's 100%, quite frankly, because if you're not communicating with somebody else, you're communicating with yourself. You are continually talking to yourself. You know that. All you have to do is stop a minute and listen to what's going on in your head. It's called self-talk. And it's really critical that we control that and pay attention to it. So I think we're communicating all the time with ourselves, if nobody else. And when you do large sample studies and you say to people, what's the first thing you think of when you hear the word communication, what do they say? Talking. But it's by far not the most uh, common communication style or even the way that we get the message across. There's so many other ways. Here's another study, and again, the percentages are very common. When you're doing a two-person communication, the way the content of the message is transmitted is mostly by nonverbals and body language. About three-quarters of the message comes through with the body language. And then you've got some tonality, voice inflection, volume, pitch, all kinds of things, which is about 15%. The actual words only account for 10%, which, again, is no... No surprise, we're divided by a common language because words only give you about 10% of the message. A couple days before I left to fly over to Australia, I had a really interesting little communication glitch. I was communicating by email because I needed to meet with this person about something, having a hard time getting our schedules to match. And finally I said, well, how about a breakfast meeting? You know, I'll meet, let's meet at 9 o'clock at IHOP, and I'll just eat breakfast while we have our meeting. And he texts, he emails me back, I'll leave off breakfast and meet you. Okay, what would you take that to mean? 
I took it to mean that he wasn't going to eat breakfast, but he would still meet me. So I email him back and I said, fine, not a problem. I'll eat you talk. He emails me back and he goes, what part of I'll leave off breakfast didn't you get? I got it. He's not eating breakfast. (laughs) So I emailed him back and I said, it doesn't matter to me what you do about breakfast. I'll see you at nine (laughs) o'clock. I get there at nine o'clock and he said, I'm, you're a bright woman. I'm just really surprised you didn't get what I said. I said, I, I read, I'll leave off breakfast. When I leave off my clothes, I don't have any on. He looks at me and he says, well, to me, leave off breakfast meant I didn't eat at home. I would wait and eat with you. It's funny if you don't take it personally and you laugh about it. But my goodness, something that simple. You know, we did seven emails and I never got it. (laughs) The thing about communication style is that it impacts your brain, body, immune system first. And then it impacts everybody you communicate with, the environment, plants, pets, you name it. And, and maybe even rocks and glass. You know that you can shatter glass by maintaining a certain voice pitch. Well, if you're maintaining a certain voice pitch and you're just pouring out negative electromagnetic energy, which we talked about yesterday. Hmm. I wonder what that impacts because quantum physics is really clear that rocks are not just a chunk of solid stuff. You know, they're molecules that are moving all the time. So I think we're probably impacting absolutely everything by our communication style. So what is yours? Is it primarily positive or negative? Does it help people feel hopeful or fearful? Is it empowering or disempowering? On and on and on, because you have one. And you probably learned it in childhood. From your care providers. That could be the bad news. Because if you learned a negative communication style... Unless you do something about it, that's what most people continue. The, the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree when it comes to communication. Unless you pay attention and do something about it. But the good news is that if you choose to, you can hone your skills and, and improve how effectively you communicate with others. But that becomes a choice in adulthood. So one of the things I encourage you to do is become more aware of how you're communicating. First with yourself. What do you tell yourself? What an idiot. You know, did you do that again? How really stupid. Because you will communicate with others the way you communicate with yourself. The the helpful thing about that is when somebody comes up to me and says something just flamingly negative, which it which sometimes happens. I never take it personally. Most of the time I laugh. (laughs) And I feel really sorry for them. I'm filled with pity because if they come up and say something really 
negative to me, I know that's how they talk to themselves. And I feel really sorry for their brain and immune system. You know, those, those body organs cannot be having a very good time. So it, it truly doesn't matter what people say to me. Sometimes I like it. Sometimes I think it's ridiculous. I usually laugh. I'll pay attention to it and see if it applies to me. But I am really clear. It's got nothing to do with me. It comes out of their brain. It comes out of their experience. And so you never have to ever take anything personally. Certainly never overreact based on what came out of somebody else's brain. If you do that, who's got the problem? So, seven secrets. First of all, speak positively. Think positively. Develop a positive mindset, period. It's the only way you put out positive electromagnetic energy, which then can affect your body positively as well as others. So we talk about an affirming style, which is short, positive, empowering words. You speak as if you're already realizing your goal. I am. I can. I do. Because if you speak in future tense, I'm going to, your brain is pretty smart and conserving of energy. And it will say, oh, we're going to, are we? Okay, when we get there, I'll help you. <laughs> no point in me doing anything till we get there. And you're never going to get there because you always say, I'm going to. So you must speak as if it's happening right now. It really came home to me not too long ago. We had a, a woman come to one of our Center for Health programs. She was no taller than I am, five foot two. Eyes were not blue, but other than that. And she weighed 523 pounds. <laughs> it's a little different from my weight, thank the Lord. Uh, we were so heavy. She was so heavy. We had to put her in a double-wide wheelchair and take her down to the kitchen and weigh her on the meat scales. 523 pounds. That's called morbid obesity. Morbid meaning... If you don't change something, you're going to be history pretty soon because the heart pumps 100 miles of capillaries unnecessarily for every pound you are overweight of fat. And it, it just is not going to last. So she came in to the program saying, I don't want to eat two pies a day anymore. That was her addiction, two pies a day. Didn't matter what flavor. She managed to get two pies down every day. As soon as she said, I don't want to eat two pies a day anymore, what's the picture in working memory? Two pies. And your subconscious will push you to eat two pies. So I said to her, pies are out for you. I actually had the kitchen bake a beautiful, real pie. In retrospect, that was a mistake. I should have had them just baste a crust and fill it up with foam or something. But they, they bake this lovely blueberry pie, which when I do eat a little pie is one of my favorites. And we took her out to the Rose Garden in front of a little cottage, by the way, which is where Ellen G. White moved after she left Australia. And we had uh, security with us, and they dug a hole, and we buried the pie. 
and that was very difficult for me. <laughs> but I needed to do a visualization for her that pie was done. You know, when you bury a relative, you really do not expect to see them popping out of the grave in a few days. So bury the pie. And I said to her, all right, when it's your birthday, when it's a holiday, pie is out for you. It is gone. It is buried. What do you want to eat for dessert? And she said, well, I like blueberry sherbet. I think I'm going to eat blueberry sherbet for my birthday. And I thought, oh, here we go again. I'm going to. I said, all right, this is what you say. It's my birthday. Today I am eating, and that's as far as I got, because she goes, but it's not my birthday. I said, will you work with me? (laughs) Today is my birthday. I'm eating a scoop of blueberry sherbet in my lovely silver bowl. I eat it slowly. I savor the taste. I feel satisfied. All right, you say that every day, tell her birthday in about five weeks, and she's got an 85% increased risk of having sherbet for her birthday. If she says, I'm going to eat sherbet on my birthday, uh, maybe not so much, because the brain is disregarding what you say in future tense. So that's the first thing. Avoid negatives. Whatever you do, when you say, I don't want to eat two pies today, what's the picture? two pies. There's a don't there. It's supposed to tell a completely developed brain that you really don't want to follow that instruction. But you've already got the picture of the two pies. And now what you do with that picture? So you really need to never tell your brain what you don't want to do. You always tell your brain what you do want to do as if right now it's a done deal. It's my birthday. I'm eating whatever. Got it? Up and down means yes. If you get this, there's almost nothing you can't accomplish if it's able to be accomplished. The right hemisphere, you know, most language, regardless of handedness, is loaded on the left side of the brain. So in the left frontal lobe, you've got Broca's area. In the posterior part of the left hemisphere, you've got Wernicke's area. Good connections between those two. They're talking back and forth all the time. Hmm, no language in the right hemisphere to speak of. There are gestures in the right frontal lobe. Some people gesture more than others. (laughs) I won't give you any examples at the moment, but you know what gestures look like. But what's fun about knowing that is supposing you're driving down the freeway and you cut somebody off by mistake and they roll down the window. Well, on your side, they'll roll down the window on the right side of the car, stick their head out and start screaming obscenities at you. What part of the brain are they using? Front left. But supposing they roll down the window and they don't say anything, they just stick their arm out and flip you the bird. (laughs) Now what part of the brain are they using? the right frontal lobe. And I think it's really helpful to know things like that. If they're flipping the bird at me, I'm not going to say a word. (laughs) If they're screaming at me, I might say, sorry, but otherwise let it go. Now, the right hemisphere doesn't have language except gestured language, and there's a little bit of affective language down there in that right bottom part, meaning the four-letter words. 
that we sometimes hear or don't want to hear, uh, words like like and love and some others, that only burst out if people are sometimes feeling really, really deep emotion, whether it's anger or whatever. But other than that, there's really no language in the right side of the brain. And the, the right hemisphere has terrible trouble with don't. It just wants to look at the pictures. So don't really makes no sense to the right side of the brain. And it has a lot of trouble with the word no. It doesn't really know how to spell it, doesn't know what it means, certainly does not want to use it because the right hemisphere is all about possibilities. It wants a yes. That's all it's interested in getting. So let's say that uh, some little kids come home from school in the afternoon. Somebody's actually been at home baking cookies, which I'm sure is a rarity in the States. It's 4 o'clock. Kids walk in the door and say, Can we have cookies? And let's imagine that whoever is there wants them to wait till dinner, They don't till tea. They don't want them to spoil their appetite with eating cookies. The typical person who doesn't understand the brain will say, no, you can't have any cookies. Okay, the little left brain kid of the two understands what no is, might not like it, get mad, but they get it. The little right brain kid who doesn't process no and is only looking for a yes will spend the whole rest of the time from that moment to tea trying to get a yes. And it's exhausting. You know, they want to argue because they want a yes. So if you know what you're doing, you always say yes if you possibly can, even if you need to add a qualifier. So the little kid says, can I have cookies? Yes, at tea. Do I have to wait till tea? Yes. If I wait nicely, can I have two? Yes. There's nothing to argue about because you're doing yes with a qualifier, and it can save you all kinds of conflict. If I told that kid once, I said it a million times, don't stand near the edge. We lose a lot of kids that way. Because what's the picture? Standing near the edge, duh. And so we give instructions to brains that are not done yet. That's anybody under 30, unless they have been traumatized, and then it could be many more years, because you stop growing emotionally when you experience uh, severe trauma. So we give them negative instructions, and when they follow the picture, instead of what we thought they should do, what do we do? Punish them. So whose problem is it? If you can possibly convey information using a story, do it. Because human brains absolutely love stories, male or female. But of the two, males really learn quickly by stories. You know, men tell, tell each other stories all the time. Yeah, they're short stories. But they're stories. Women call them jokes and don't understand them. But that is what men are doing, telling each other short stories, which conveys information and so on. You are far more likely to remember information connected to a story than you ever are if somebody just tries to hand you facts and figures. And when 
two or more senses are triggered by the story, the way it's told or the content, and there's some emotion present, it has a high probability of going directly into long-term memory. Okay, that's the good news and the bad news. So if you have teachers that know how to portray information using stories, you're going to learn. It's going to go right in long-term memory. If you have a little downtime after the class, you probably don't even have to study anymore. You've got it. But not everybody knows how to do that. When you study the parables of Christ, they're just stories. And everyone I've ever studied, looked, analyzed, there's always words and content that will trigger at least two of the sensory systems, visual, auditory, or kinesthetic, and there's usually some emotion present. You know, gladness that you found the gold coin. You know, happiness because it's a wedding, and my goodness, this wine is delicious. How come, how come you waited till the third day to, to service this? And so on and so forth. So remember that when you're telling stories. Now, boys need to move to learn, some more than others, but virtually all of them. I made a huge mistake with my three sons because we didn't know this information. I read to them almost every day. They loved that. I'm glad I did that. It's just a testimony that they loved the stories because I would say, okay, it's time for story hour. Put all your toys away and sit down uh, and fold your hands and I'll read to you. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. You know, they, that's the way I was raised. You know, they'd say, well, can we still play with our cars? And I'd go, no, you won't be able to listen. And then we got the information that they will listen better if they're doing almost anything in addition to listening. I mean, I think that's what happens often, you know, in the morning when a man and his wife are having um, breakfast or coffee together. He's reading the paper. She's chattering away. She goes, are you listening? He goes, uh-huh. And he's listening much better reading the paper than he would be if he wasn't reading the paper. Yeah, small problem uh, depends um, how hard he hears, not just listens, because then the problem can come when she, he keeps saying, uh-huh, are you listening? Uh-huh. What did I just say? Oops. Now he says something she said three weeks ago. <laughs> you can forget communication for the rest of the breakfast. Um, what about, uh, how does this relate to always watching movies? So it's a visual story. Is that more powerful than telling stories? Is watching a movie more powerful than telling stories? I'll give you my brain's opinion. For many brains, it, it totally depends on the content of the movie. There's lots of emotion, lots of action. It can go directly into long-term memory, and it might not be something you want in long-term memory. As far as building brain function, there's nothing better than hearing a story. Because you create the pictures in your brain when you hear the story. And I'll tell you, uh, the movies I create in my mind are way, way better than most of the ones I've ever seen. You know, your brain is really capable of, of creating fabulous pictures. So it's, it, it's based on the content of whether you want that in long-term memory. And when you hear stories, 
especially stories that teach information with you know, activating the senses and emotion, that will go into long-term memory probably easier because you created the pictures to start with and you have not the downside of loading things into your brain that may come back and trigger thoughts that you really don't want to have triggered. I am really careful. When I got to the dorm the other day, I thought I was going to stay in one dorm, <laughs> and the uh, the dean said to me, uh, "We've got five big hulking basketball players staying in this part of the dorm. Uh, do you want to share a bathroom with them?" <laughs> I said, "No, I don't want to share a bathroom with my three sons. Never mind five big hulking." Strangers. <laughs> so um, I got I got put in another bathroom. <laughs> it was kind of fun. Now, in order to have male brains pay attention over a long period of time, they either need they need to be standing and moving, or they need to be doing something with their hands. And the first time I made that comment, I followed it up with, "And there's only so much a man can do in public with his hands." I could not believe I said that. <clears throat> There's only so much any of us can do in public with our hands. So the other day I was lecturing to 250 psychiatrists. And I brought, I bought, have you seen those little squeezy brains? Okay. I bought 250 squeezy brains. Because I wasn't sure that they would stand up and move around, and I wanted them to stay awake. Actually, I was giving them information that would help them get ready to take boards. So I said, you know, when you, when you have your energy advantage in a part of the brain where there's no language, it's just really hysterical. If you can laugh at yourself, you're never without material. So I've got this big, <laughs> I've got this big box of squeezy brains here. So I said, can a couple of you guys come up and help me pass these out? I brought each of you a brain. <laughs> there were a couple who tittered. So I handed them out all these brains, and I said, if you feel the least bit like your mind is wandering or you get sleepy, squeeze your brain, and it will keep you awake. All right, one of the... Uh, one of the guests there was a radio radiology oncologist from Lomeland University. He came up to me and he said, I stayed awake the whole time. He said, I can't believe that. He says, I don't know what the deal was. Is it really that I'm squeezing a brain? And I said, well, yeah, because I can't be that interesting. <laughs> and he said, well, I never can stay awake in church. I mean, never. I'm taking this brain with me, and I'm going to try it out in church next week. So he emails me from Loma Linda, and he says, Well, we had a really boring minister. I would have to squeeze the brain today. He said, I stayed awake for the whole thing. Must be an accident. <laughs> he emails me the next week. He says, I've been through two more meetings, and I stay awake I just have to sit there and squeeze my brain. He says it's sometimes a little embarrassing. He says, I've learned to put my hand under my coat because somebody comes up and I'm sitting there squeezing this brain and I feel like an idiot, but I'm awake. 
So you need to do something. So with my grandchildren, it's a whole different thing. You know, their first thing is, will you read to us? I say, fine. You know, bring your little cars out, whatever you want to play with. They're crawling around the floor, you know, playing with their cars. I can ask them any question I want about the story, and they know the answer. And you sit them down and tell them to be still and shut up and fold your hands and don't move, and they don't. They don't know what you just read to them. Learn to ask questions. Now, I really want to make clear I'm not talking about the way that people usually ask questions. I'm talking about learn to ask astute questions because the brain goes through an entirely different process when you ask a question. When you just give a fact or an instruction, you know, one little part of the brain might be clicking away. But when you ask a question, your search engine in that middle layer, the hippocampus, starts searching the entire brain for everything your brain knows that might have a bearing on that question. I was taping some YouTube things in Newcastle. Oh, one of these earlier in the week. The days have run together. And so the person who was doing the taping said, uh, most of the time I just tell people to start talking. I don't, uh, I don't ask any question or do any introduction. And I said, well, that's too bad. And he said, how come? And I said, well, ostensibly somebody's going to be watching and listening to these YouTubes. I mean, that's the idea for doing them, right? He goes, yeah. And I said, well, if you start out with a question, their brain will be having an entirely different process going on while they're listening to whatever I'm saying. Well, he said, "Um, I'm willing to try it. So I told him what questions to start with because he wasn't used to thinking of questions to ask. And we did all seven YouTubes starting with a question. And according to research, people who listen are going to have an entirely different brain experience than if they didn't start by hearing a question. You need to ask them in a very non-threatening, non-demeaning, non-shaming manner. And if they answer, you know... These are more like rhetorical questions. Christ asked questions, but he always followed them with an answer. He never, I can't find any place where he asked a question and just left everybody hanging. So you're really not looking for an answer. If you get one, fine. It may be different from the one you thought of because there's as many different answers as there are brains, and most of them are valid. They just may not be the one you thought of. So when you ask a question, you can actually teach indirectly because sometimes the person starts thinking about information in a way that they never, ever thought about it before and wouldn't have had you not asked the question. You can increase their awareness. They will start creating mental pictures in their brain. You can get information often without downshifting that brain. You know, when you ask questions in a demeaning or there's only one right answer and I'm waiting for you to give it to me, you dummy, uh, you're going to downshift the brain. They probably won't be able to think of much. And you'll keep that search engine going. But you need to craft your questions carefully. Uh, You need to give some forethought to them, understanding uh, brain function. 
I'll tell you. Here's a few questions from school. The first one happened to me. Teacher says to me, can you divide five in half? What was my answer? Sure. That's what I said. It's 2.5. And the teacher says, no, it isn't. I said, it isn't? 2.5 plus 2.5 is 5. Teacher said, I'm waiting for the right answer. I said, I gave you the right answer. So that was another trip to the principal's office. (laughs) Bottom line was the teacher was trying to teach integers. Do you know what an integer is? It's the name for an, an odd number that you can't divide in half using a whole number. Well, who knew? So if you're talking about integers, no, you can't divide five and half. You can divide six and half, and eight and half, and four and half, but not five, seven, or nine because you can't use a fraction. But my goodness, fortunately it was a lovely principal who I got to know very well. So here's another one. Teacher says, in which battle did Napoleon die? Kid says, his last one. Exactly. He gets sent to the principal's office. You know, how should you phrase that? What is the name of the battle in which Napoleon died? Duh, it's not the kid's problem. It's the teacher's problem. But the kid gets the F. The river Ravi flows in what state? Absolutely. Liquid. Another wrong answer. Where was the Declaration of Independence signed? Of course. That all makes sense because the teachers are not asking the questions in the way they need to ask them to get a different answer. But unfortunately, it's soften the kids that suffer. Oh, there's so many of these. You can take any question in the world and rephrase it and get a perfectly wonderful answer. All right. Avoid ever using the question why to start a sentence. That's going to be a problem for some of you. I think that my mother started asking me questions beginning with the word why before I was born. Because I found out much later that she wanted to have one child and one child only, and it would be a boy, and it would be born on uh, our father's birthday so that she only had to do one cake for, for two birthdays. She forgot to tell me. I was not a male. I wasn't born on his birthday. I was five days late. For years, she would say, why couldn't you have been born on the 26th of January instead of the 1st of February? And the first time I made some comment like, because you didn't push me out. That was not taken well. (laughs) So why get rid of it? Because... In any any language I've studied, the word why is perceived as anxiety-producing, a little threatening, 
and it can downshift the brain in a nanosecond. You know, if somebody says to you, why didn't, Dr. French, why did you not put your boot on? Yes. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, when he was younger, he probably would not have said yes. <laughs> There's no answer for that. He doesn't know the reason he didn't put his boot on, even with a PhD. You cannot, the brain never can answer the, a question starting with the word why in an objective manner. It can only tell you what the brain thinks might have played into that decision. It's a worthless way to get information, number one. And number two, because of the anxiety and just that little perception of, oh, well, screwed up here, I wonder if I'm going to get in trouble, it's just enough to downshift the brain, to push their the brain's energy and attention down toward the subconscious parts of the brain, and then any cogent conversation is just, you know, doesn't happen after that. There's lots of things, lots of ways to get information without starting with the word why. The problem is that most of us grew up being asked why. Why didn't you do this? Why did you do that? Why in the world did you think that would work? You can't answer those questions. So you could say, what result are you hoping for from this choice? I'm very, very glad that I learned a little bit about this before my eldest son got his driver's license at the age of 16. He woke us all up at 4 a.m. So we would be sure we would be down at the DMV by 8 a.m. that morning so he could get his license. He got his license, came home. The first thing he says is, Dad, can I take the car out? His father said, yeah, you can take it out for a few hours. You know, be careful. Be sure you're home by 6. He didn't say which day. <laughs> 6 p.m. came, no kid. Midnight, there's a knock on the door, and it's the California Highway Patrol. And they said, do you have a son named so-and-so? And... We said, yes. I said, well, he's all right, but he was in an accident. He's down um, in jail, and you can come down and bail him out anytime you want. And I'm going, well, what happened? Well, he says, I, I really don't know. It's just that, um, you know, he ran off the road, um, creamed a, um, a county sign. It's going to cost him about $2,500 to replace that, and your BMW doesn't look like it did when it left home. He said, we did find some open containers of beer in the car, so we think he was a little spifflicated. <laughs> we don't drink. He, I'm a public health nurse. He knows about alcohol in the brain. Well, his father did a very, very smart thing. I'm not sure I would have been that smart at the moment. He said, fine, officer, we'll be down to pick him up in the morning. And I'm going, what? We're going to leave him in jail overnight? And he goes, yes. I said, okay, probably a good thing because I had time to calm down. <laughs> so we get to jail the next morning, 8 o'clock, and here he is sitting on the bunk, you know, with a mattress about an inch thick. He looked like he'd been put through a, pulled through a knot hole, I'm telling you. He's just starting to get some 
stubble and you know his hair was a mess and his clothes were a wreck and he looked bloodshot now if I didn't know about this I'd have walked in and I would have said what were you thinking why did you drink and drive and he would have gone I don't know and he wouldn't have known so we didn't say anything I said hmm I've seen you looking better. <laughs> Let's get you home, get you cleaned up and fed, and then we'll talk about this. So we took him home, he showered, we fed him. And I started out by saying, uh, according to the CHP, you had some um, open cans of beer in the car. Uh, what, what was that about? Well, he says, I stopped and picked up a couple of my friends, and they wanted to go to the 7-Eleven to get something to drink. And he said, Mom, I didn't think they were going to bring out beer. I thought they were going to bring out, you know, 7-Up or something. I said, well, I can understand that. So I said, when they did come back, what did they have? Well, they had 7-Up and Coke, and they had two six-packs. I said, so what decision did you make about the six-packs? He said, you know, I didn't really think about it, Mom. Um, yeah, I think you're not supposed to have open cans of beer in the car. But they opened the cans of beer. And I said, and? Well, he said, they told me that, you know, beer wasn't very alcoholic. And I said, well, I'd never had any to drink. And they said, well, here, try some. It won't make any difference to your brain. And he said, you know, Mom, I believed him. I said, yeah, well. So what happened? Well, he says, I drank two cans, ran off the road, and wrecked the car. Hmm. I said, well, when you drank that beer, what were you expecting to have happen? He said, nothing. They said it wouldn't affect my brain. I said, okay, so now what do you know about how much they know about brain function? He goes, zip. <laughs> and I said, well, what could you do another time to get a different outcome? Well, he said if they brought beer in, I would have stopped and told them they had to put it in the car, in the trunk. In the boot, sorry. If I put it in the boot, you wouldn't be able to walk because there'd be no room for your foot <laughs> where I come from. <laughs> and so on. And we had a pretty decent conversation. And he, his father calmly informed him he wouldn't be touching the car. Uh, for at least three months, uh, nor would he be using his license for three months, and he would be spending all his earned money on paying for the sign and the deductible on the car and stuff like that. We had um he never ever got in trouble with the law again, and he is now well i 'd have to count up. He was born in nineteen sixty six so figure out how old he is and and we would we had a totally different communication than I would have had with that kid if I didn't know this. And it would have been a much more negative outcome. So this is how it goes with many parents and teachers. So we've got a little problem here. Why did you steal those sausages? Uh, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Uh... They smelled good. That's no answer. Uh, I don't know. I was hungry. Go to the garage and stay there too. Give me a decent answer. So how effective is that? 
Use the bottom line. Communicate simply, clearly, directly, appropriate to the listener's brain development. And that's something I always have to try to remind myself. Because, you know, the corpus callosum is paved about what age? Twenty or twenty-one, good. The prefrontal lobes are developed about what age? Mid to late twenties, all right. Many people look all grown up before their brains are that age. You know, people come up to me to ask me questions all the time. You know, a guy came up to me yesterday, you know, nine feet, three inches tall. I mean, I can hardly see his face. And he looks all grown up. And I'm thinking, and he asks me this question that a grown-up would not ask anybody, usually. So I'm thinking, where'd that question come from? Out of the blue. And I'm thinking, oh, yes. So I said, do you mind telling me how old you are? Yeah, I turned 17 yesterday. Oh, good. <laughs> Corpus callosum isn't even done. Forget the prefrontal lobes. So as long as you know that, then you can deal with that question much more effectively. But when you don't think developmental age, regardless of what the body looks like, your responses are often going to be a bit inappropriate. So if you, if you just can deal with the bottom line, you save all kinds of problems. This is my, one of my favorite cartoons. You want the bottom line? This is the bottom line. I'm on my bottom and you're on the line. <laughs> the thing is that female speech is very indirect. It suggests a course of action. It never gives the bottom line unless it's learned to do so. And the problem is that male speech is just the opposite. It's very direct and very specific, and all it wants is the bottom line. It does not want the story A to Z. It takes more energy for the male brain to decode the female voice. And by the time they get to the bottom line, they're already exhausted and they aren't decoding anything. And it's really hard for women to get this. So women, it's fine to use your female speech with your girlfriends. By all means, they'll know what you're talking about. You use it with a male brain, he will not have a clue. And by the time you get to the bottom line, as you perceive it, they aren't, they're out of energy and they aren't even listening. So here's an example. Male and a female are driving in the car from here to Newcastle. And she looks at him and says, are you thirsty? In female speech, what does that mean? It means, I'm thinking about wanting something to drink. Let's start a conversation about this. And the other woman will probably say, well, you know, I'm not really thirsty, but are you? And the first one will say, you know, I think I am. And the second one will say, well, given that you think you're thirsty, what are you thirsty for? And now they'll talk about 15 different drinks. And after about 10 minutes, they'll say, well, do you want to stop and we'll actually get something to drink? And now they negotiate when they're going to stop and where and for how long and so on. It's whole hour conversation. 
And they finally stop, and they're all very happy, and it works very well. She says to him, are you thirsty? Direct, you know, bottom line language. He thinks, am I thirsty? Very literally. And he answers yes or no. And if he's, he'll say no and keep driving. <laughs> and she's waiting for the conversation. And it's not happening. And pretty soon steam is coming out of her ears because he is so rude. No, he just answered the question. If two guys are driving from Avondale to Newcastle and the driver gets thirsty, he doesn't say squat. He just pulls over, goes in someplace, and gets something to drink. And if the other guy wants to do it, fine. Otherwise, he can wait. There is no conversation. So women need to tell the stories to their girlfriends and learn that if they're speaking to a male, they've got to give them the bottom line. Now, most men that I have met are only too willing to pull over and let you get something to drink if they know you're thirsty. But they're not going to guess because theirs is a language of directness and concreteness. There's none of this ask a question to start a conversation. So if I'm thirsty and I'm somewhere in a car with a male who's driving, I'll just say, pull over at the next available stop. I'm thirsty. He gets it. He does it. We're all happy. He hasn't wasted any energy on listening to an hour of discussion. You need to get it because they're different languages. Be really careful with your voice tones because I know sometimes women understand this intellectually, but they get that little edge in their voice of impatience, and that's not very helpful. The good news is that the male brain is not as good at decoding tonality. And so they often just missed it, and that's probably a very good thing. No need to feel bad just because she doesn't understand male speech. But it happens a lot. You know, a, a boy and a girl, let's say, are playing on the floor at home, and the mother comes in and she goes, we're, we're leaving. We're leaving in about three minutes. And I think you need to get this place cleaned up. And if you want dinner tonight, you will do that. He stopped listening after the first three words because it takes his brain so much energy to decode a female voice. Little girl's busy picking all her stuff up because she wants to eat. Mother comes back. He hasn't done diddly. And she goes, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you clean your stuff? He doesn't know why he did it. He didn't even hear that they were going to have food. (laughs) So you got to know who you're talking to and speak to them in their language. The number six, I think, I think I've got seven. How are we doing for time? I've got to talk faster. Feel free to leave. <laughs> Stop arguing. And I mean it. Stop arguing. 
We spend half of our lives arguing about stuff, number one, that doesn't matter, and about something as simple as males and females speak different languages and we're not bilingual. So, I mean, if you were talking to somebody who is a a Spanish speaker and you don't speak Spanish, you'd be knocking yourself out to try to communicate with them. Maybe learning a little Spanish. Every word they said of English or every word you said in Spanish, you'd both feel so good about each other. Well, male and female speech are as different as French and Italian. And we usually grow up learning only our gender language, and we don't even become bilingual with the other one. So people argue for tons of reasons. And often it's because they're addicted to adrenaline and dopamine. Because when they argue, they pump adrenaline, and when adrenaline goes up, so does dopamine. So they get a hit of energy, and they feel better. So they love to argue. And it really is a dead-end street because it's so hard on the brain and the immune system. And Paul talks about avoid meaningless controversy and foolish argument. And there's a reason. If you want to be healthy, you've got to stop with that. Arguing in a home is not fun for any of the kids, but it's lethal for the male brain. In large sample studies, boys hate, hate to hear their parents argue. It will downshift them. They, it may take them two or three or four years, especially if they've had years of arguing, now the parents divorce and there's a lot of acrimony. It can take them several years to return to learning readiness. I was talking to a a young couple just a couple of days ago. They came to me and said, we're having a little downed period in our relationship. And they explained to me what was happening. And I said, you know, it never really gets any better after you're married than it is before you're married. Because you're on your best behavior before you, you get married. There are some things that can get better, but basically what you have is what you get. And if you are arguing all the time now, what makes you think that signing on the dotted line is going to automatically make you stop arguing? Do you want to do this to your kids? I don't think they appreciated my response, but, you know, and the question is, what's the reason for the arguing? Are you addicted to the adrenaline? Do you have to be right? Do you think you are right? You know, large sample studies, at least one, if not both people, having the argument thinks their brain really knows. And if they talk louder and longer and maybe throw in some pejoratives, that other blank, blank brain will get it. So there is an 11th commandment that's called thou shalt not explain. It only applies to people over 18. But it does apply to them. My father taught me that when I was 11 years old. He said, as a minister's kid, you probably need to know this. He said, Christ didn't argue. Christ didn't answer every question he was asked. And he went on and on and on. Uh, He said, "Um, remember that. So the next time he asked me something I didn't want to answer, I said, I'm taking the 11th commandment, Dad. And that's when I found out it only applied if you were 18 and had left home. (laughs) But I'll tell you, it's helpful to know. I don't answer every question I'm asked. feel under no obligation to do it. 
whatsoever. Say something once and be done with it. You know, people say the same things over and over and over again and expect a different outcome, and that's my definition of insanity. Like if you say it 15 times and each time the decibel level's a little louder, maybe that person will finally get it. It's not going to happen. So get the skills of learning how to agree to disagree. You know, there's many things in 12 months it won't matter. You know, I don't care what color the towels are in the bathroom. I genuinely don't care. I just care that there are towels there. So what are you going to what are you going to draw as your line in the sand and for what reason? So I'm always asking myself, will this matter in 12 months? If it isn't, I'm spending no time on it now. If it will, then I will state my position and I have the skills to be able to negotiate to a common outcome if I need one. But not going to not going to go there. This is what is so maybe good and bad about language. Here's the same sentence seven different times. And just by where you put your voice inflection, you can give an entirely different message. You need to monitor your voice inflection. So I didn't say you should leave now. 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 What do you mean? Be really careful and clear about what you mean and have your voice inflections match that, which takes us to the last one. It's really important to be congruent. And congruent means everything matches. Your words, your voice tones, your gestures, what you do, the underlying meta-message. If they match you increase your likelihood of being understood. Even something this simple, you're so pretty. And she thinks, what does he want? Because you're so pretty as compared to what? Does that mean you used to be ugly? Does that mean sometimes you're ugly? Does it mean you're pretty today, but you weren't yesterday? I mean, be really careful what you say, because what does it mean? You probably don't even know what it means. But if you can be congruent, you just minimize conflict. There's always going to be conflict out there, because some people never get this. But if you can minimize conflict, so much the better. The meta-message is what you really think, regardless of the words you use. And what you really think will come out in the meta-message, in your non-verbals, in your voice tonality and inflection. So be really careful of that. You know, if I said, pretend Dr. French has a tie on. I'm glad he doesn't, but pretend he does. So supposing I looked at him and said, that's a nice tie. What are the words? 
That's a nice tie. What's the meta message? What do you mean show them up in public with that rag around your neck? It looks dreadful. So if you don't like something, keep your mouth shut. I don't have to say anything about his tie. Now, supposing he comes to me and say, said, uh, my, my wife bought me a new tie today. How do you like it? <laughs> I might think it's horrible. I'm not going to be stupid enough to tell him that I think his wife has lousy taste. And if I were him, I'd never wear the tie. So what kind of things you can, can you say? Something like, see, I don't answer the question often, you know. How do you like my tie? I'm not going to answer how I like his tie because I think it's horrible. But I'll say something like, how nice of her to get you a tie. That must make you feel good. End of discussion. So have some things ready to say when you don't want to answer the question. Because you cannot authentically answer it without some meta message if you really don't want to answer the question. Address the context or the behavior, never the person. So when I say, that was really nice of her, I bet that makes you feel good. That's the context, meaning that she gave him a gift. Great. I don't have to like it. Oh, and this is another one. Women are always asking their male friends, how do I look? Does this make me look fat? Do you like the color? Remember that the male brain, their retina is loaded with M cells for motion. They got a few little P cells for perception of color and texture, not many. So stop asking them because they don't even see it. And if they got color confusion, everything looks gray. So, do I look fat in this outfit? I say to the women, look in the mirror. Stop asking. If you look in the mirror and you think you look fat, you probably do. You don't need anybody to validate it for you. I mean, because if he says, oh, I think you look kind of pudgy in that. Then what are you going to say? What do you mean I look pudgy? And now you've got three weeks of arguing because you asked the question when it would have been better if you didn't. So bad news and good news. I started out by saying most of us learned our communication style in childhood. Oh, boy. And if we didn't like the way our parents communicated with us, you often hear people say, I'm not... I'm not doing what my parents did. I'm going to do the opposite. Well, read my lips. 180 degrees from dysfunctional is still dysfunctional. So if you didn't like what your parents did, then figure out a functional way to do it. Don't just do the opposite because it will be equally dysfunctional. It will just be a different kind of dysfunction. And the, the good news is that you learned your communication style. You picked it up. You chose it. And therefore, any time you want to learn to communicate more effectively, you can absolutely do it because you learned it to start with so you can relearn a more effective way. Would you like the last word? 
Let me just remind you, tomorrow night Tomorrow night is over in the church at 7.30, and then 10 o'clock on um, Saturday morning here, and then uh, 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock uh, Saturday afternoon here again, okay? So there's one change. We're in the church tomorrow night. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.